0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. I also have the passage on the insert with an added passage as a bit of an intro to this final sermon from this expositional series Witnesses for Christ, the book of Acts. I want to also point out that you have a yellow insert in your bulletin. This is that time of the year where we switch Sunday school classes. The quarter, the new quarter, the spring quarter, begins next Sunday. So note the new uh, youth and children's classes and then the adult classes, various offerings. I hope you would make this a priority in your life to uh, to attend these classes. They'll help you in your growth, your children's growth. And so read them over, pick one, and show up next week at the location that is there noted. Today we come to this last sermon from the book of Acts. I'm sure there will be other sermons in the life of our church, but... As series through a book goes, this may be the last time I have opportunity to have this kind of an uh, experience with you as we walk through this whole book. We have studied the book for about two years together. Two years was the amount of time that Paul spent in Caesarea, as you recall, um, basically under house arrest there, and then he left to Rome when he appealed to Rome. That journey took about six months in the winter, fall and winter months. We remember that perilous ship. Journey in the wreck and all that went into that. Finally, he has arrived at Rome, the passage we have before us. Before I read that passage, I want to remind you of important mission words that Paul spoke when he was in his third missionary journey and he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, that church that he loved so much and spent so much time with. He gave them this awesome exhortation, timeless exhortation to the elders. But that exhortation also sets the stage for this last scene that we have from Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts uh, before us. So here as I read God's holy word, remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word, and therefore it's authoritative in our life. So I read Acts 20, verse 24 to set up the rest of the passage. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now the last half of chapter 28, starting at verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have come to the final verses of this great book of Acts. The acts of your Holy Spirit working by the commissioning of Christ and through your apostles and witnesses. These past two years have been a treasure of gospel riches as we have become acquainted with your strong hand of redemption in the early days of the church, post-resurrection. Now, as we close this study... Please give us understanding of your word so that we might have our faith strengthened, our worship of you enhanced, and our obedience more consistent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were not previously familiar with the closing of Acts, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many were thinking this is going to end with him standing before Caesar and being condemned to death in his execution. Like, that seems like it could be the way the book would end if you or I would write it. Because that kind of thing did happen at some point in his life. But remember, that's not the point of the book of Acts, the life of Paul. Now, we've been seeing the book of Acts through the lens of Paul's life, but the book of Acts is about Christ expanding his kingdom to the uttermost parts of the world. You remember in the beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, the Spirit of God was promised to make the people of God able to bear witness there in Judea, or in Jerusalem, their city, then the state of Judea, then the outer area from there, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world. The ministry of Paul stands as a bit of an example for us about how God will do what he promises. And through Paul, of all people, drawn from total unbelief, zealous against Christianity, he gives him strong witness in all of these places and finally making it to Rome, um, the capital of the known world essentially. And there is Paul in Rome when we pick up our text. So the last part of the book really isn't so much about Paul, although we see it through his lens again, but it's about how God fulfills his promise. In the last verse, it's just an opening into what is supposed to come next every generation after. It's what's timeless to us about witnesses for Christ from this time forward. And we have the whole deposit of how God started it all in the book of Acts. So now as we look at this last half of the book, this last ministry focus of Paul, let's see it. For what it can teach us in our ongoing effort to be witnesses for Christ by his gracious enablement. When he talked to the Ephesian elders, he said to them these important words in the 24th verse of Acts 20. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus." To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We see here Paul fulfilling his mission for him in these last verses, proclaiming Jesus to the very end. And it causes us to ask the question what about us? What about this generation for the church? Are we fulfilling God's mission to proclaim Christ to the very end? What about us as individual believers? Are we faithful in the capacities he's given us to proclaim Jesus to our very end, whatever God ordains that to be? These final words of Luke describing Paul's last official gospel ministry activities, like so much of Paul's ministry that we have seen, gives us direction for ministry in all time periods. You'll notice first in verse 17 and following, we can see the importance that Paul places on assessing the obstacles to his gospel mission. He's there in Rome, ultimately, to give witness to Caesar, and that's really symbolic of Rome itself, but Caesar personally, even we could assume, if God gives the opportunity. But in so doing, he has to be careful, and he does something careful right at the beginning to assess what his obstacle might be to this mission. Verse 17, after three days, and that's three days after recovering from his long journey to Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, now, we might think, why would he go right into the furnace here, since that's, where, that's who he was leaving from in Jerusalem? But it says that he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people nor, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans." So Paul was in Roman custody, and that was clear, and he wanted that to be clear to the Jewish leaders there. He didn't know the basic temperature of the Jewish leaders in Rome like he knew it in Jerusalem. We know how it was in Jerusalem. It was extremely pressuresome from him there. He had to basically be protected by the Roman tribune. He had to get sent away from there to assure his his ability to stay alive, and he goes to Rome. So now he wants to assess what is the temperature of the Jews here because if it's hot, I have to be careful to fulfill my mission carefully. So he's trying to gather what do they know about him, what do they know about Christianity. At the same time, he's sending them the message that he comes with some pedigree, he has knowledge, he's clearly a a teacher, um, and he's advocating for Christianity, he's protected by Rome. All of this is just careful assessment of what he's up against as he gets to Rome. Verse 17, the second part, continuing. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of the, our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for... For the death penalty in my case. Now you could be sure there are Romans listening to this. He's under Roman custody. So everything he says is calculated and careful, and he's trying to bring the situation uh, into the best handling he can. Verse 19. But because the Jews objected back in Jerusalem, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. I wasn't confronting them, but I had to, by protection, appeal to Caesar. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain, that singular chain going to a Roman soldier that he stayed chained to in these accommodations that he had where he was meeting these people. And he's saying, I'm here basically in peace. I want to have opportunity to tell you what I believe. But I just want to find out what you know about me, what you think about me. See, he's being very careful to assess the obstacles when he goes about his mission, and that's certainly something we can learn from. They reply in verse 21. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now we can be pretty sure that this is for good reason. There wasn't much travel going from Jerusalem to Rome, and we now know why, don't we, based on the shipwreck. Uh, There wasn't much travel in the winter months. So that's probably the reason there wasn't um, a messenger sent to tell Roman Jews who Paul was and what his charges were. Um, The other reason is there's probably a mixture of Roman proselytes that are part of this Jewish group. So there's just not the same straight concern. It's not the acute disturbance yet. Now they know of Christianity and they don't like that. But of Paul in particular, they're not quite sure yet what to make of him. Verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, he's talking about Christianity, they are, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, it would have had a very low rapport in Rome, especially where Caesar lived, the king as far as they were concerned, or the emperor of the world, even a deity to some people, emperor worship. And so the idea that Jesus was a king, would be particularly negative in Rome. And this would be what was spread about. And that's what they knew of Christianity, at least from a distance. But this would give him a chance to explain the gospel, the exact mission he was on. Just by being careful, asking questions, s- uh, sizing up who his listeners are, he's able to keep moving forward with what he has been called to do to testify to Christ. They desire to hear his views. When we seek to give testimony to Christ, it's prudent and wise to assess where our obstacles lie. That's true for you as an individual when you think of people you would like to share Christ with. You get to know who they are. You get to learn who they are. What are their interests? Who are they as people? This gives you opportunities to know where the roadblocks might be, all in an attempt to eventually find a way to introduce them to Christ. Last week when we had Phil File here, our missionary to South Asia, and I've known him for many years and I'm always amazed by the wisdom he has about ministry in his locale. He has to be very careful. There's receptivity there and there's also uh, negativity and opposition that he can be confronted with. At any moment, he's constantly walking carefully to decide yet at no time compromising what the mission of the church is or his mission as a pastor, a teacher, a church planner. He just knows his environment, he knows where the problems might be, he tries to meet those head on and talk calmly with people, if it be people who are opposition, whatever it may be. Paul gives us this model. We see it here again. Now, when a hearing is given, and you have the opportunity, and they're saying, tell me what you believe, we should spare no energy trying to convince people about Christ. That's what we have Paul do. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. You can imagine a a huge group packed into probably a small area. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, he came to speak to the Romans and here he is getting the Jews together again to share the gospel. Now a couple reasons. You know that Paul's not only was he trying to assess the, the level of hotness against him with the Jews there, because that would determine perhaps the mindset that the Romans had toward them. If they were like the ones in Jerusalem, it might not be hard to sway Caesar to kill him. The other thing is he starts with the Jews first almost always as a practice, and then he goes to the Gentiles, just the way that he carried out the mission God gave him. But also, he's chained to a Roman soldier. And the Roman soldier sat for 12 hours listening to Paul preach. So there's more to this than just him talking to the Jews. There's an audience here, and because he's able to stay here for so long, really the the climax of this book is far greater than you might imagine at first reading. I mean, to sit in an apartment-like complex with a Roman soldier, under custody, with people coming to visit you nonstop for two years. We read in one of the epistles later that someone in Caesar's household was a believer. So the mission is being accomplished, but now he's got this captive audience, if you will, as they listen. And look at all the ways for 12 hours he works to convince them. The passage says that he expounded to them. It says that he testified to the kingdom of God, or he thoroughly testified or fully testified as the language, the Greek language reveals. Full testifying. He was trying to convince, it says in one version, persuade in another about Jesus, Derek Thomas comments on this. Paul's use of persuade is especially noteworthy. It speaks of Paul's rhetorical skills and powers of assimilating evidence in a convincing fashion as well as heartfelt conviction. He's pouring everything he has into trying to convince them about Christ. About Christ, but notice what the passage says in particular. Um, He is there to expound to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets, Now these are synonymous, but there is a nuance to these terms, especially given his audience. The big hang-up for the Jews was their notion of Messiah was one of a political liberator. Yes, spiritual, but really they would manifest their spiritual power or favor from God by how much actual physical liberation he could give the people of Israel. So their idea of Messiah was not a Nazarene who was cursed on a tree. Their idea was one who would be the anointed one of Israel like David, but way better. Like David 3.0. And he would come and be the king of Israel to dominate all those below. Maybe make them come to God, but it would be through this Messiah king in Israel. So that's their picture of the kingdom of God. You could imagine that Paul... The well-understood Pharisee, who knew the Bible better than probably anyone sitting there, had to reframe for them what the kingdom of God actually was. It was actually way better than what they imagined. It was an eternal kingdom, a kingdom you couldn't see with your eyes at first glance because it's a spiritual one. It crosses over every boundary you've ever thought of before. It's not just about the Jewish people anymore. It's like was promised to Abraham. All the nations would benefit from Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah. And this kingdom is now being built. This is the great kingdom of God that Jesus forecasted. And so he's testifying to this. He's expounding to them so they understand this. Now, at the same time, he's preaching to them Jesus. And he's doing so for 12 hours. He's laying out Jesus as the Savior. And how does he lay out Jesus as the Savior? Well, we've got examples of that we've studied throughout this study. But here in particular, he goes to the Law of Moses Another hang-up for the Jews would be the fact that nobody can keep the law perfectly. They're doing these sacrifices over and over again. The rich young ruler may have claimed that he did, but what the rich young ruler really meant was, basically, I keep them. Paul's here to say, through the law of Moses, guess what? Jesus kept it perfectly. Not like the rich young ruler said, or any of you may say, just to say you're better than the person next to you, but you know you still sin. No, the law of Moses was perfectly fulfilled by Messiah. Messiah. Of all the Israelites who ever lived, of all the Israelites who had ever received the covenant promises, none of us sitting here, Paul might say, could receive them because we failed. But there's one, one Israelite who kept the law of Moses. And if we believe in him, we have kept the law of Moses through him. So you can imagine him preaching Christ with great passion with regard to Jesus' act of obedience and perfectly following the righteous standard of God and the law that they all knew and were scared of because they couldn't keep it. Don't be scared anymore, you could hear Paul saying. Jesus has kept it for us. And then he goes to the prophets. So now, in light of that, this anointed one the prophets are talking about. Can you see that this is the Christ? In Isaiah 53, when Jesus passively obeys and puts himself under the wrath and curse of God, on our behalf, we're saved in him. Now do you know that's the Jesus? And he was raised again. God did not allow his body to see corruption through the mouth of David he speaks. So you could just, I would love to, I hope in heaven, the Lord gives us these flashbacks to moments I've always wanted to see unfold. But as a preacher, keeping people awake for 12 hours while chained to a Roman soldier and go through all redemption history would have to be in the top five of the things I want to see. Lord willing. From dawn to dusk. For us, spare no energy as a church to do all we can to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Now, corporately, we come together as a team and we give towards this, we serve towards this. Every function that you fulfill in the life of the church is part of bolstering the church's greater mission. It's all necessary. So I don't want you to think that there's certain tasks you do that aren't as important as others. No, we all come together to See the church strengthen so the people of God can be strengthened. We can give honor to God, and then from that place of strength, we can proclaim boldly to the world Christ. And we should spare no expense to our dying day. I mean, we should get over the line wore out as a church. And as individuals, similarly, I would like you to think in terms of sparing no energy to let people know who Christ is, and how they can know Christ. Now, I know that every situation is slightly different. Your relationships with people are different. Take them in that way. You know how you relate to someone. I'm not saying plow in with your Bible in hand and opening to every damnation passage you can pick and talk them into it. I don't necessarily mean that. Some people need that, but most of the time, the relationships you have are there providentially. God put them there. All of them are, but they're really there to ultimately give you opportunity to express salvation through Christ. That's what evangelism is. It's proclaiming Christ to all those that we come in contact with. And Paul's tireless efforts certainly speak to us on on the level of the corporate church as well as every individual Christian. Paul said in Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, here's something we're going to learn in verse 24, though, after I just said all that to you. The results of evangelism are in God's hands. We should tire ourselves out evangelizing, but recognize that ultimately, the fruit of that has to come from God. It always does. Sometimes we erroneously think, As a definition of evangelism, it includes the results that we get or the feedback we get or the numbers who proclaim faith in Christ. I'm not suggesting that no follow-up should happen to those things, but that's not evangelism. Evangelism is proclamation of the truth of the gospel in Christ. Uh, Recognize we can't make people be born again. That's God's doing. And we see it in verse 24. I mean, this is after Paul, the Apostle Paul, multiple PhD equivalent in Bible, theology, and doctrine, not to mention rhetoric and philosophy and all the other things the first century had to offer. He was expert in all of those. It would be difficult to find a guy with more pedigree, more credentials, uh, more of a background in debate and discussion and oratory, all of this. and 12 hours, he expounded to them, and he's an apostle. And still, verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, which is tremendous, but others disbelieved. So if Paul could spend 12 hours like this and still have some believe and some not, what we're seeing here is that who believes is utterly of at the discretion of God and his will. We don't know the answers to that. We are just called to preach this message and proclaim this message. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. The moment of true discovery happened when Paul rather aggressively applied a famous prophecy from Isaiah at this point. So he's at the end of his day, presumably, and he gets to the place where he can recognize there's some who are believing. In mind, this is a predominantly Jewish audience, obviously. Some of the Jews are believing, some are not. But he applies a passage that has been applied previously by Jesus and also the Apostle John speaking of Jesus, and it's from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. So really four applications total because the one Isaiah initially gave in Isaiah 6. And it's basically a prophecy that there will be times or a time when the Jewish people, although they hear the message clearly, they reject it. Now, it's not saying every Jewish person because there's some who believe in this passage, as is the case in old Israel, back when there was a remnant who still believed. I mean, Simeon was looking for Messiah, so there were Israelites who were looking for Messiah, And then in Jesus' time, some believed, some did not. But here Paul, as a close to the meeting, applies the verse as you see it in its context from Isaiah 6. Look at verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here's the statement. You can see, I don't think it's that Paul's frustrated with their unbelief, but he's just making a true application to be right, confrontational to those who had heard all of this message and still rejected it. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and and turn, and I would heal them. So the opportunity for repentance is not taken away. But the emphasis or the focus of the teachings of the gospel will focus elsewhere at this point because they've heard enough. They've received more than anybody has ever received and they're rejecting it. And this is the same message the prophet Isaiah had for sinning Israel back in his day, 700 B.C. It's the same message Jesus had for the Pharisees in Matthew 13 and Mark 4. It's the same message that Jesus had that John 12 records in a different instance where he sees that so many of the jewish people were not listening there was a transference by god's original design to go from israel to the nations i will make you a blessing abraham and through you the nations will be blessed and that's what we see happening now in fullness in acts always still open to the jews open to any ethnicity but they must come through christ they must come to christ And this message will be turned outward. And Paul is telling them that's what will happen. I started with you here at Rome. I'm telling you the message. And now, so you know, I will go towards the Gentiles. And it's just like Isaiah said it. That's what's being said here. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Once again, evangelism is the clear proclamation of the gospel, the clear proclamation of Christ. It's an activity that happens with with no real regard to results. Now, we can expect that God will yield results, but that's not why we evangelize. We evangelize because he tells us to, and that's how he normally calls people to himself. And we are overjoyed when we see the fruit of it. We can actually discern it. But we still do it even if we don't see it. There are missionaries who spent years, especially in... Uh, In Africa, there's one example I'm thinking of where it took four or five years before a convert ever could be noted. But evangelism most certainly occurred. The seeds were being sown. All these people are hearing, even the ones who say they don't believe at uh, at the onset, they do clearly know what Paul said. And that really should be true of us as a church. Someone should walk in with no background in Christianity and not take too long to at least know what we're claiming. Oh, they're saying that people are sinners and that there's one who wasn't a sinner who died for us, and if we believe in him, then our sins could be forgiven. Now, they may not agree, they may disagree, but they understand what we're saying. It's a rational plan that we're laying out, and it's very clear, and we're careful to relay it. The means that God has chosen to born people again is the preaching of the gospel coupled with the ministry of his spirit. So we preach Christ and leave the results to God. God converts sinners, not us. God regenerates those who are spiritually dead, not us. God borns people again. That's not something we can do. And we see this over and over again in the ministry of Christ and the apostles. So Luke's final account of Paul's ministry is not his death. Instead, as we come to these last verses, Luke leaves us with a picture of gospel proclamation reaching Rome rather than a focus on the messenger of Paul himself, although we do see some particulars. It may have felt like the book was steering toward Paul's death, but in actuality, he's not the focus. The focus is Christ's witness. The focus of the book of Acts is relaying the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel where no one imagined possible. And of course, Paul is mentioned in the conclusion because he is the lens we're seeing this through. And we see him take every advantage of the time God gives him in the end of his mission, verse 30 and verse 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. We also know that he wrote several books. He wrote Titus, he wrote Philemon, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians and Colossians while he was in this house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier in receiving guests. Why did he stay two years in prison? Some have surmised that that's just the legal statute for how long before the Jews had to prove their case. And since they could not prove it or did not press it any further, after two years he was released. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Verse 31. What did he do? This is how Luke wants us to remember the mission of Paul in its final chapter. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's like Luke is saying, the Holy Spirit saying through Luke, Christians, if I give you a mission, I will make it successful. There's no promise it will always end in some happy fashion the way we look at it, but my gospel will go forward. And if you thought there would have been massive hindrance in Rome like you should have thought, this evidences that even in Rome, in Caesar's guard working in this situation two straight years of preaching the gospel of the kingdom and it says with boldness all boldness and without hindrance Derek Thomas wrote this rather than finish the book focused on Paul's death therefore Luke leaves it focused on the gospel and it's unfinished mission to the world it's just left there open as the gospel goes forward what an ending, really. It keeps in coherence with Christ as the hero of this book through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the apostles and those early Christians and extended to us. Now, what did happen to Paul? We don't find out in Acts, and we only have church history attestation. We do know from some of the epistles that he wrote first Timothy after he got out of Roman prison. He got out of this prison experience. And he was free for maybe two years until the time of Nero. And in those two years, he wrote First Timothy, the pastor that he left in Ephesus. Then it seems, by all accounts, that he was taken back into prison under Nero's guard. And from prison, knowing his life was about to end, he wrote his second letter to Timothy. And in that letter, Paul said this, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul fulfilled God's mission for him, proclaiming Jesus to the end. Will that be said of us for you? By God's grace, it will. John Stott, who I've leaned upon throughout this series for many good thoughts, said this, the acts of the apostles have long ago finished, but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world, and their words will spread to the ends of the earth. And I say to you, my brothers and sisters, we are in fact witnesses for Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are very grateful for your word and especially this book that we have now completed. From this book, we have learned of your dynamic actions to grow the kingdom of Jesus from the time of his resurrection and his ascension until now. And still, Lord Jesus, we know that you are seated at the right hand of your Father, actively advancing your kingdom by subduing your enemies to yourself as you've done with us here gathered. Now we are no longer your enemies, but we are sons and daughters of God because of your work on our behalf, Lord Jesus. In Holy Spirit, we have studied your movement in the regeneration and salvation of people throughout the book of Acts, as well as your special empowerment of the apostles to speak and write your word. We praise you for preserving those words in Scripture so that we could grow in God's grace. Father, this exposition of the book of Acts may end today. But the growth of our faith and our encouragement to obey your commission has been refreshed. And we ask that our zeal for Christ would last a lifetime and that we may finish the mission that you have given to us, proclaiming Jesus to the end. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let us respond by singing a victorious hymn about Jesus' dominion and his power and his worship. 296 will stand and sing the first uh, four verses of all hail the power of Jesus name.